0: Happy guy, then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie. Then he thought that he just couldn't die. So, then he laughed. So, all Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-400. That's right, 4400. 400th numbered episode. That's something. You know, I still get the occasional letter from someone who has found inspiration or comfort in what you and I, my friends, do here on the Run Run Live podcast podcast, and by George, if we're still helping people or adding value in some small way, we'll keep going. A couple of notes about last week's show. I said Buddy was 14, which technically was correct, but he turned 15 this week. The old dog. He doesn't like getting up in the morning now, especially when he has to troop outside in the freezing cold. And uh, the other thing that I forgot to add was in the, in the pet store story I got so flustered by the karmic peeing and pooping incidents that that uh I forgot to use that coupon that I went home to get originally that started the whole thing. Say lovey. I'm making some progress or if maybe if you're in Canada progress with my nutrition. I'm going on over 30 days of pretty clean eating and starting to see some good results my strategy was to start early this year and not wait until after the holiday. This way, even if I could battle to a tie, I won't be starting my spring training cycle in a hole. If I look at data from previous years, I typically lose it, and that's not wait. I lose control big time in December, and it typically cost me 5 to 10 pounds. So if I have any chance of requalifying this year with the new standards, I'm going to have to be 10 pounds lighter going into the race. And my legs and my pacing continue to give me trouble. Coach says it's a hangover from the 100 miler. I just can't seem to find my easy zone 2 pace on the roads anymore. I'm working it. I'm trying to be patient. So the nutrition, I think, will help that a little bit. Being lighter always helps. On today's show, we have our friend David Foss, who took an adventure to the Dead Sea to run a trail marathon, and in section one, I'll give you a brief recap of my Mill Cities race, and in section two, I'll talk about a book I've been reading. I read a lot of books. (laughs) Reading is my go-to vehicle for absorbing content. I listen to a lot of audio, too. I have to be careful because I can be influenced by these things pretty radically. I'll read the latest book on XYZ and then find myself all of a sudden trying to put XYZ into full-blown practice everywhere in my life. So my filters aren't the best sometimes. This time of year, you know, it's hard on a lot of people. I don't know why. I was out today and everybody's so stressed out and they're being so mean to each other. I don't know, maybe it's the holidays, you know, they force you to deal with a lot of stuff, with family stuff, maybe because it's so cold and dark around here. Maybe it's something seasonal within our DNA, within our evolutionary species, so to speak. I was reading a post, an emotional outpouring from a woman on the social media site where she was, she was posting that she was really struggling. She had gotten out of an abusive relationship and had another relationship fail and she was injured and she couldn't shake the feelings of desperation and depression and the walls were closing in. And I suppose that's one of the positive things about social media is that people can use it to reach out to the community for help, right? So sure enough, there was a long trail of positive responses for this woman, people trying to help. It was a positive response to the cry for help, 111 responses in a couple of days as the uh, last time I, I looked at it. And I happened to notice a post. At the same time I was reading this post, I happened to notice another post that our friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, who is in a related profession, had shared. So I copied it and I reposted it to her and this is, uh, I'll quote the, the post. Did you know that if you text HOME to 741741 when you are feeling depressed, sad, or going through any kind of emotional crisis, a crisis worker will text you back immediately and continue to text with you? Many people, especially our younger ones, prefer texting to talking on the phone. And it's a free service to anyone, teens, adults, etc., who lives in the United States. There's probably others in other regions as well. Remember, depression is real, and you're not alone. So that is my, uh that's what I reposted. seven four one seven four one. Text HOME. I have not tried it, but I trust Greg, and it's in the show notes if you need it. I also responded to this lady that... Basically, we're all basket cases. (laughs) Some of us just hide it better, and she should just keep running. Because running running fixes all that, right? (laughs) Because on social media, people only share their perfect worlds, right? With their perfect relationships, and their perfect children, and their perfect race times. So life is not like Facebook. Life is rusty and lumpy. So don't get caught comparing yourself... someone else's best day ever. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Mill City's Relay, 2018. Couple Sundays ago, I raced the Mill City's Relay for probably the 21st or 22nd time, I don't know. The first time I did it, I think, was 1995, and it was with my running club. It went well, but there were some interesting wrinkles that are worth talking about and that we might learn something from, and the biggest difference this year was that I had a lot of time to get ready for my leg due to the logistics. Our club has the same problem as a lot of local social clubs. We are graying out. We have no problem filling competitive teams in the over 50 or even over 60 age groups, but we are challenged in finding younger runners. So I asked my youngest, Teresa, if she wouldn't mind coming up and running on a team to help us out, and she said she could, but had to get right back afterwards. So we cooked up a plan for me to retrieve her from her apartment in Boston Saturday night and get up early for the pre-race meeting Sunday morning in Groton. The challenge now is how to get her back to Boston and work out all the logistics. The relay, the Mill City's relay, is a five-leg relay that runs down the Merrimack River from Nashua, New Hampshire to Lawrence, Massachusetts. It runs through Nashua, Draket, Lowell, Methuen, Lawrence, and maybe some other towns. I don't know. But these are the mill cities. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, this river, the Merrimack, powered many large textile mills in these places, many of which still exist as hulking red brick reminders of our heavy industrial past. Fortunately, or unfortunately, the budding labor movement in the early 1900s made some unreasonable demands like, hey, you can't have a nine-year-old working on the machinery," or or you didn't have to work seven days a week, 14 hours a day, or management couldn't arbitrarily cut your wages when the commodity prices went down, you know, things like that. And all the mills packed up and went south to the Carolinas, where the attitude was a bit more forgiving and the unions didn't exist, and then eventually they all moved overseas to places in Asia and other places. And we were left up here with a dirty river, a depressed regional economy, and a bunch of sturdy buildings of red brick and steel that would burn down spectacularly every once in a while. Most of the mills have been converted now, and the area is relatively stable and relatively striving. It's still a low-rent region of Massachusetts. It has a very high immigrant population due to the availability over the years of cheap housing left over from the mill towns and it's uh, culturally interesting and vibrant the th- best thing i like is that the river has recovered and i run along this river many days now and it's a beautiful beautiful river it's a broad river and i watch the river as i run it's a living breathing thing with immense power Being a logistics and optimization expert, I figured out how to make all the connections work so I could get both Teresa and I to our legs and get her back to Boston. We would go up to the early morning meeting in Groton. I would drop Teresa there with her team, and then I would retrieve my bib number from my team and meet my team at the start of my leg. Teresa would then drive my truck to the end of my leg to meet me, and then we would drive back to Boston. And this arrangement was made possible because Teresa was running the short leg for her team, leg three, and I was running the long leg for my team, leg four. Now usually I would be running a good bit faster than Teresa, but that evened out as well. She was on a younger, faster team, and I was on a, shall we say, relatively pedestrian mixed senior team. But let's make one thing perfectly clear. She has a long way to go to beat me. How to make red pepper, coconut, shrimp, and spinach curry. First, make the shrimp marinade. 12 to 14 large shrimp, deveined and shelled. One and a half tablespoon fresh lemon juice, sprinkle of cayenne pepper, and a pinch of salt and pepper. Then you make the sauce, two tablespoons vegetable oil, one medium onion, one bell pepper, two teaspoons of minced garlic, two teaspoons of fresh minced ginger, one and a half teaspoons ground coriander, three-quarter teaspoon curry powder, one-quarter teaspoon plus an eighth of turmeric, one 14 ounce can of diced tomatoes with the juice, one teaspoon of honey, one 14 ounce can, full fat, unsweetened coconut milk, salt and pepper to taste, a large handful of spinach, and some cooked rice for serving. So you clean those shrimps and you toss them in the marinade in a bowl. Let them soak for a while in that marinade. Toss the onions and the garlic into a big skillet and saute add the ginger in stir it in add the rest of the spices the tomatoes the red peppers simmer for a bit add the coconut milk then add the shrimp and cover throw in the spinach it's done when the shrimp turn pinkish and the spinach is cooked serve it over rice it's restaurant quality it's like a thai dish i think it would be awesome with a little fresh basil did i mention i'm on a diet not really a diet more of a strategic clean eating session I've also been teaching myself how to cook. I declared Friday nights to be cooking nights in my house, and each week I attempt something. If you can cook it in a cast iron skillet, it's right in my wheelhouse. And this also prevents me from sitting on the couch drinking beer and eating pizza. I'm avoiding my normal beer and pizza pogrom that I typically embark on after my fall race and then pursue through the holidays. I'm going to see if it helps to go into my spring race training cycle light and healthy as opposed to heavy and polluted. I mention this because one of the aspects of the Mill Cities Relay is that it is the end of season celebration for all the local running clubs. And true to form for our local runners, this relay ends in a bar where we usually get stuck for a few hours drinking beer and merrymaking. Which, don't get me wrong, drinking beer and merrymaking with all my running buddies from across the region is one of my favorite things, but it runs a bit counter to the healthy nutrition strategy. Now, having to take Teresa back to the city gave me a credible excuse to skip the party. I had around three hours to waste. The meetup was at 6 a.m., I dropped Teresa with her team, checked in with my team. It was hovering in the mid to high 40s and drizzling cold rain. We stood around the rain a bit, and then I hit the road. Based on the paces and the start times, I had a lot of time to kill. The race starts at 8. The first two legs are 5 or 6 miles each, and the third leg is 2.5 miles. And that estimate put them into the start of my leg somewhere around 9.45, 10 o'clock. So I went to Starbucks, filled up on coffee, and read the New York Times. And that killed an hour. I was fairly wet and chilled from the cold morning shower. I had worn a jacket that I thought was waterproof. Turns out it wasn't. My race gear was dry, but my standing around gear was wet and it was still raining and and it was cold, so I ran across the street to Walmart and picked up a $12 sweatshirt, some warm socks, and a $2 fleece blanket for after the race. Eventually, I made my way over to the transition zone, trading texts with Teresa and trading texts with my team to make sure everything was still synchronized, and usually this is a hard leg to race because you get slammed into it cold. If you're in the car with your team, you just don't have much time. You launch your 2.5 mile runner, collect your leg two runner, and then drive to the transition area. It doesn't take long to run two and a half miles, so you're always in a rush to make the handoff. No time to warm up or stretch or anything. You jump out of the car, you hit the river trail, and you hope to warm up somewhere along the way on your nine and a half mile leg four jaunt. Not this year. I was able to get a parking space right in the transition. I was able to use the porta potties as many times as I liked. And I was able to run a nice 20-minute warm-up. It was still pouring rain as I suited up and got my final race kit on. People were were having Boston flashbacks, but it it wasn't as cold or anywhere near as windy as Boston. Just a steady cold rain, a lot of deep bottles on the course. Teresa finished as I was just getting ready for my runner to come in. So we made the exchange and she began her adventure of trying to drive my truck, which is a standard, out to the next transition point. I call that my millennial theft prevention device, the standard transmission. My runner came in in a few minutes and I started my own adventure of pounding out nine and a half miles in the rain. And my legs have been cooked since nah, October. I just can't hold the tempo paces or the race paces that I could hold this time last year. Something happened. After the 100 miler, I felt great. My threshold test showed that I had great aerobic capacity. Then I threw in some speed work for Bay State, and apparently that must have pushed me over the edge into some overtrained state, and I lost my legs. And I've been fighting to get them back ever since. For this race, I was deploying the same strategy that I used in the Thanksgiving 5K. Just go out, run hard, take what the race gave me, and not worry about it. True to form, it hurt. Even with the good warm-up, my legs were dead. So I just ran to that edge and tried to stay on it. And I practiced a fair amount of form skills and pacing mantras. Uh, The good news was that because I was on a slower team, even as I was struggling, I passed over 20 runners on my leg. It felt like I was running with cement shoes, but I came in around a 7.47 per mile, which is pretty slow for me, but I'll take it. I beat the 11 a.m. cutoff for the sunshine start, and so that's where for the last leg, if your runner doesn't show up by 11 o'clock... They send everyone anyhow. They just send whoever's left. So I felt like I worked hard. I was sore the next day. Happy enough to still be out there and still getting to both the start and the finish line successfully. But I do hope I come out of this current ditch by Boston. And that's why I'm trying to get the nutrition right to see if it helps my recovery. Teresa found me. I threw on my dry $12 hoodie. And we trekked back into the city to drop her off. And it was a successfully executed day. And now for today's featured interview. David Foss, I wanted to talk to you because you had an adventure. And uh, I like to think that I gave you some inspiration, a kick in the pants to go out and have adventures. So you went and had an adventure. And you're going to come and tell us about it.
1: Absolutely. So I went from being kind of a straight road marathoner over the last few years to really getting bitten by the bug for trail races and trail ultras. And I've done about six or eight ultras, all of them off-road and actually all of them in New England. So up until last month, I have never run a race outside of New England. And I've done a 50-miler and and this summer when you were training for your 100-miler, I trained for a 12-hour race which was overnight and in the rain. And I did fine, I was happy with my 57 miles. But I realized that the coolest part of that was getting outside of my comfort zone and kind of seeing what I could do when the sun wasn't shining or where the weather was bad and I was at my limits. And a bunch of people have been talking about doing interesting races and Zen uh, Runner and his daughter are doing an ultra out in Zion that I found inspiring. And I thought your 100 miler in the greater Cleveland metropolitan area was inspiring. And so I took the opportunity and found a trail marathon in Israel. And so the the last Friday of November, I went over to Israel, flew over for a week, did a bunch of touristy things, and ran a trail marathon in the Negev Desert, which is in southern Israel, kind of squeezed in, pinched between Jordan to the east and Egypt to the west, right on the coast of the Red Sea. And the city where it starts and finishes is a beach town called Eilat, which if the signs were not in Arabic and Hebrew, you could have found yourself in Fort Lauderdale or Acapulco. Like, it had every bit of beach town atmosphere to it, except the signs were in Arabic and Hebrew. So is that on the ocean side or the lake side? The town is right is at the northern end of the Red Sea, so definitely on the ocean side. The race itself, the marathon, out of 26 miles less than three miles were on pavement. So you kind of ran two miles of pavement on roads getting out of town and then approximately 23 miles of sand and desert trail in the some of the driest, most arid terrain you're going to find in the world with just these beautiful cliff faces and escarpments and running up these dry valleys, which in, in the southwestern U.S., we would call it an arroyo, in the Middle East, they call it a Wadi, W-A-D-I, and that's the kind of this dry, dry stream bed valley. The trail was just beautiful. It was actually a pretty amazing course in that by following these stream beds, I mean, there's plenty of elevation gain. It was about 1,500 feet of elevation gain, but it was all very gradual. There were, there were very few steep stretches. So in that context, it was an interesting race, but so 23 miles on sand and dirt and gravel, and some of the sand was kind of like coarse beach sand that you might find on Cape Cod. Some of it was powdery like flour and this kind of ochre, kind of red brick color sand. And when you ran through it, your feet would be kicking up little clouds of dust. And then there was kind of this more black and fine-grained sand. And when I do trail races, one of the key rules is, you know, you got to protect your feet. And so if you get sand in your shoe, you stop and get the sand out of your shoe. And I stopped once to get, I'll say, a pea-sized piece of gravel out of my shoe. And then I realized it was a losing battle. Like I was going to finish my day with sand in my shoes and I was going to survive. And it, it really wasn't all that bad. My one tactical error, I think, was that I have gaiters, like little gaiters put over your shoes and I totally should have brought them. Oh yeah. That would have been a oh, yeah. a tactical, a, a good decision where I actually failed by making a bad decision.
0: Yeah. The gaiters are key and especially in an ultra, because you may want to pull over and take your shoe off, but you're incapable of doing so at some point.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, but so the interesting thing, I saw very, very few people wearing gaiters. So people were treating this like a road run. And this was really similar. Actually, one of the things I found most interesting, it was really similar to your average American marathon. I'm going to talk about registration numbers rather than finish numbers, but there were about 800 marathoners. There were about 16 or 1,800 half marathoners, and yeah. it was a crazy international field because there's an unbelievably low airfare to the nearest airport from Eastern Europe. So there were 80 runners from Poland and like 60 from Germany, 40 from Hungary, 35 from Italy, and 22 from the U S and that's, those are split between the full marathon and the half. So I'm not really sure that they the breakout, but they're runners from a total of 30 countries. So it was pretty neat. About 20% of the runners were not from Israel, which would make you think that when they did the announcements and then when they did the signs, there would be a lot of English and really not so much. Like this was the kind of place where I went and like, okay, I'm glad I've done a bunch of marathons. So I know what's coming next because They're not giving me instructions in in a language that I can follow, but it was all good. There's no harm to it. And I never felt at risk because I couldn't understand what was being said. But certainly I enjoy telling a story and chatting along the way during a race as a way to kind of govern myself and make sure I'm not going too fast. And I talked very little in this race, actually. There was over the first 20 miles, I barely had a hello with anybody. And then at about the 20 mile mark, there was a a gentleman whose name was Yehuda, who is Israeli and he's almost exactly my age, so he's just passed that 50-year-old 50, 50 barrier. They've got four kids, and we ran together for a good mile, and we're kind of telling stories and realizing how parallel his life is to my life. We live in a different country, speak a different language, but otherwise, our worlds are very, very similar. So that was a kind of yeah. a cool thing to see on the other side of the world. I got to back you up. You just
0: did a whole sort of brain dump on me here. So it The conditions sound a little bit like maybe an Arizona-type run, sort of scrub bush, desert conditions. And you said there was a lot of loose sand and loose black sand and red sand. When you had a lot of people in front of you, did it kick up the clouds of dust and get in your face and your lungs and stuff? That can be a little bit uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it it was certainly arid. Like, this is an area that gets very, very little rain all year round. And actually on the website, it's like, we guarantee nice weather. So one thing that was favorable, it was kind of partly cloudy that day, so the temperature never got up above about seventy five degrees. I didn't really feel okay. like I was roasting. It started at six am, which was right around dawn. So for those Perfect. of us running around four, run, right, right, finishing around a four hour marathon, it really didn't get warm until hour number three. Really. So conditions in that respect were good. The fine powdery sand, like the really flower-like sand, I guess I wasn't in a crowd when I encountered that. So it wasn't like other people were picking up dust. But one thing I did find is that it really was like running on the beach. So when you're at the beach and there's kind of the hard packed area that's kind of, you know, been recently dampened by the incoming and outgoing tide. So what I found it was actually better conditions for me to run two or three feet off to the side of the trail, you know, it's paralleling the trail, not, not cutting any corners, but just paralleling the trail because where people hadn't broken through that kind of, That little bit of crust gave me a little bit more push-off, and so I wasn't losing energy with every stride. So especially in those soft sand areas, I was definitely picking my line, I think, more than most. I think a lot of people, there were probably about a third of the course was what I would call Jeep track, like double track, and people were just kind of running straight down the tire tracks, and as I looked at that, it was really soft that was not the most favorable (laughs) position. One thing that was very different than Arizona, it looks like if you look at the photos, it has this Arizona feel, there's almost no wildlife. There was very little scrub vegetation. During the race, I saw no evidence of critters, no birds, no lizards, no snakes. Like elsewhere in Israel, I saw some of those things. But in this part of the desert, it was really, really crazy arid and no wildlife at all. And during the course of a four hour marathon, I drank seven 20-ounce bottles of fluid, four bottles of water, and three bottles of electrolyte. I use noon electrolyte tablets. And so I was thinking to myself, there's a story about this guy, Moses, who wandered through this very desert for 40 years. And what did he drink in 40 years if I knocked back seven bike bottles in four hours? But I might have been going at a slightly different pace than
0: him. But uh, it just makes you realize
1: everything you do.
0: do No, no, I was going to say you're stealing some of my dad jokes here. I was going to ask you if it took you 40 days and 40 nights.
1: Besides running the marathon, I was there for a week and did some of the touristy things. That included doing some shakeout runs just outside Jerusalem. And it really is this interesting juxtaposition of perfectly modern Western country. Like if you're in urban Jerusalem, you could be in Boston or actually, no, if you'd be in a much better planned city, Boston has too many one-way roads that are too curvy, but you could be in a Midwest city like Indianapolis or something like that. Like it's pretty well planned and designed and laid out. And then you drop down off the crest of the development, off the ridge, and you're down in the Wadi and there's Bedouin families living with their goats and like they have for 5,000 years. And so it's really interesting to see that kind of modern development right up against really traditional uh, society. And I had the opportunity where the race was, was just south of the Dead Sea. And so you have to go and float in the Dead Sea, which is a bizarre experience. But I visited a bunch of historical parks and ruins. And at one place, I'm gonna list off the list of of historical folks who have, I'll say, uh, contributed to the history of this area. I was amazed because you go and you can see like Byzantine ruins and Babylonian tiles on the floor of a house where they kind of see the foundation. And it is absolutely amazing because there's so little weather, like there's no frost, there's so little rain, things don't break down. So they just covered with sand and dust and they need to be excavated. But one timeline that I looked at and I was just flabbergasted, and this was when I was just outside the Dead Sea, near where the Dead Sea Scrolls were recovered in the 1940s. The Canaanites were here 3300 BCE, the Israelites 1000 BCE, and then the Babylonians about 580 BCE. Then the Persians came through 550, the Greeks came through 330 BCE, the Romans had their peak around 63 BCE. So you've got like eight cultures that have all been through this neck of the wood and kind of placing their flag in the ground. And that's before... The last 2,000 years. And then the Byzantines came through, Muslims, the Christian Crusaders were around 1099. And then you have an Arab group called the Mamluks. And then in 1517, the Ottomans. And the Ottomans controlled this place for 400 years. So from 400 years, from 1517 till 1917, with World War One happening, the Ottomans ruled this place. So the State of Israel came into being post-World War II in 1948. Uh, we'll call that seventy years ago, plus or minus, but the Ottomans ran this place for four hundred years. The amount of history is just astounding. And it's it was one of those things where after a few days of doing touristy things and visiting the old city of Jerusalem and the Western Wall and the Temple Mount, and you see these Roman ruins and realize that those Roman ruins started getting knocked down two thousand years ago, but they knocked down two thousand years of other people's stuff before they built it up. It was just amazing. I guess the my biggest lesson learned from this was, I'm so glad that I saw this opportunity and took the opportunity. And it, big picture, it really wasn't that expensive. Like if you take airfare, you could go anywhere in the world for probably less than a thousand bucks. And I probably spent less than a thousand bucks during my week there. It was just a really great, great opportunity to kind of see something that is just a hundred percent different than what we're going to find in New England and kind of the, the history. I live in a town in New England that just celebrated its 375th anniversary. So that's pretty old for North America, and that's one tenth of the age of the development in yeah. in this part of uh, yeah this part of the, the Levant. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's amazing. I've done a fair amount of travel. Certainly, I have never been to the Middle East or anywhere in that area, but I have been in some places in Europe, and it's the same thing. People will say, "We live in Boston, right?" Because that's the nearest biggest city. Right. Yeah. And you talk to somebody from Midwest, and they go, "Oh, Boston, I love the history." And you're like, "Yeah, it's 250 years of history." There's Building stones that are 4,000 years old, where you were, or even up oh, in Amsterdam, yeah. you got a canal from the 1600s, right? It's just a drop yeah, in no, the bucket. It's, so it's, yeah.
1: It really is. And the interesting thing is that since at least 1,000 years BCE, all these cultures were writing stuff down. And so they have documentation, now, whether that's on tablets or scrolls or whatever. But because that's that's something, I mean, people have lived in North America a long time, but you don't have the written documentation that you do in this part of the Middle East. It's just amazing what is there and what is well documented. People might fight over who deserves to own what, but the history is there and is definitely well documented and and pretty well preserved. I think they do a nice job of, of making this historical ruins accessible. And those are definitely accessible to folks in English, too, like the touristy kind of things that you'd want to see are in English and Arabic and Hebrew, but also they have lots of different translation options. If you show up and look for a a pamphlet, they'll give you the language
0: that you need. Yeah, so when you were in the race, was there anything on course that you could uh, see? Did you get any good vistas or archaeological stuff?
1: Yeah, so, so nothing archaeological, but I did bring my camera, and I did, I don't want to say I stopped to take photos, but I certainly took a few walk breaks. So where the race is at the very southern end of Israel, it's part of the—and I'm going to slip into my geologist mode for a moment—so the the geology is primarily sandstones, and the textures of the slopes and the hillsides look very much like the Grand Canyon. I guess I would say one side of the Grand Canyon. Imagine you're just kind of up against one side. But the sun rose over the East Jordan Rift, which—so the country of Jordan and the city of Aqaba which is the port city right on the Red Sea, and the sun rose over that, and it was the most spectacular, like, corpuscular rays poking through the clouds. It had this verging on religious experience, and I'm not a particularly theological person, but it was just spectacular, really beautiful. And then the the mountains that we ran up into had a good mix of terrain, and so you'd see these beautiful black bands and kind of reddish and gray bands. And each time, like we're running in these these valleys, these stream valleys up into the mountain, so you just had beautiful vistas, but when you're in the flat, looking into the mountains, there's nothing for scale, so there's no city, there's no buildings, not even trees, like there's a bunch of like kind of these scrubby things that are about six or eight feet tall, so you can look across and be looking like twenty miles horizontally across a flat because there's just nothing between you and the mountain, and the air is so dry, there's no haze and no obstructions so The scenery was really beautiful. And in that context, it was very similar to going out to the Arizona desert. With one giant exception, there are no cactus. So I didn't see a single cactus while I was out in the actual wilds of the desert. Some of the hotels in the city, they use them for landscaping, which makes good sense, but there's not a cactus out there in the negative desert. And so as you run along, you realize how little moisture there is for wildlife to survive out there. It was pretty, pretty amazingly arid. Um, but so anyway, I guess from a vista perspective, I had some beautiful vistas looking both east towards Jordan and then kind of west towards the mountains that were kind of the boundary between Egypt and Israel. Pretty amazing so, views, but so, um, nothing there. So David, you're saying the only bushes were uh, burning bushes? <laughs> Practically. Yeah, no, they're like these scrub things that are, I guess if I had to pick something, it kind of looks like a Joshua tree in California, that type of growth was kind of a really thick, scrabbly trunk, but very low and very, very coarse. Where they were, you're not running through those. They're definitely drought
0: resistant. (laughs) So talk a little bit about your kind of introverted scientist type in your career, right? (laughs) How did you decide, you know what, I got to do this. I got to take this adventure. And what would you tell other people that are sort of in the same place? Yeah.
1: So I guess I will not disagree about being a scientist. The people who know me will not say that I'm in, I'm an introvert. I'm certainly not shy about kind of being in front of folks. But yeah, so my day job is doing kind of what I'll call brownfield redevelopment, kind of cleaning up commercial and industrial contaminated properties and helping people redevelop them. So I spend a lot of my time at my desk in my home office and helping people redevelop properties in New England. So I guess one factor is my mom lives in Israel and she retired there 12 years ago. So so that was the instigation for where how I picked this specific location. And since I, she'd never seen me run a race of any type. So it was kind of a, a nice thing to be able to share that experience with her and having her at the finish line. She's a little more theological than I am, I'll say. And uh, one funny thing that happened right after I finished, she's like, oh, my gosh, you know, and I, just under four hours. It was kind of, a, I'll say, a comfortable marathon. I, I wasn't pushing my pace. I was just making sure I was happily enjoying everything I could see. And uh, she said, Oh my gosh, it's a miracle you finished the marathon. And she's this stout little 75 year old Dutch lady. I said, If you had finished the marathon, that would be a miracle. Me finishing the marathon is par for the course. I've been training for this for years. But so I guess my instigation was that I wanted to do something different. I've done a bunch of trail runs in New England. I want to do something different. And I felt like a little bit of that carpe diem. I'm going to have a birthday that ends in a zero next year. And I wanted to say, Mm. you know what, let's go and see different things. Unfortunately, the Boston BAA decided to uh, take away the five minutes I was going to get back in my qualifying time. So my ease of requalifying for Boston just disappeared. So I figured I should go do some interesting things and take advantage of it. And whether that means traveling to visit friends in other parts of the United States and, and run races elsewhere, so basically, I knew I wanted to go and see something different. Going and visiting my mom while while she's in Israel and taking advantage of it while she's well and able to do all the touristy things that we wanted to do was great, and that was a good motivation. But I have to admit, I picked the timing because there was this race, and there's also a marathon in Jerusalem, but I felt like running a marathon in a city – in the middle of the Middle East, I can run in a city anywhere. I can run in Boston. I can run in Hartford. I can run in Providence. And I felt like this was something that was totally different, and it was absolutely worth it. Like, the experience of seeing something so unique and so different. And frankly, once you're at the halfway point, once you're 13 miles into this marathon, with only 800 runners doing the full marathon, I was no way near people. Like, I had plenty of space for yeah. myself. Yeah. And so this you were is, all alone. you know, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, there's... I mean, because of how this ran in the mountains, there was no fan support. And we didn't expect any, so it was not a big deal. They had the appropriate number of water stations. That was perfectly fine. But this was very much a solitary experience. But the other interesting thing is with the half marathon, they started that an hour and a half after they started the marathon. So me finishing a four-hour marathon is the same time that people are finishing a two-and-a-half-hour half marathon, which meant that for my last three miles, as we overlapped the courses, I was passing people left and right, and it is the biggest motivator <laughs> to have hmm. this string of half marathoners. And if someone roughly, their pace is like a half a minute per mile slower than mine, if that's their kind of, or I don't know, but they were going slower than me. So it made it very fun for a marathoner who still has some juice in his legs to kind of be reeling in the half marathoners in those, those last few miles. Actually, one other interesting thing about this race, it's similar to a U.S. race where the the expo was similar. They even had a big pasta dinner as a pre-race meal, but I'm not a big fan of going to those kind of hotel pasta dinners. So my pre-race meal was falafel at a street vendor, and it was a great, great pre-race meal. It was such a perfect Middle Eastern experience, and that was great. But post-race, they had this post-race party the night after the marathon, and it was like a rock concert it was insanely loud and i actually i anticipated that and i brought hearing protection like i had earplugs and i stayed for the announcement of the awards like they kind of went through all the different age groups and i didn't get anything i knew i wasn't getting anything and i left as soon as they started playing the music it turned into a dance party and i thought to myself yeah. what a crazy thing and it's because it was this kind of escape weekend so people from all over israel and all over eastern europe came to this Beachside Resort for a weekend getaway, and it finished with this great big after-party. And uh, it was insanely loud, and they were partying pretty hard. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I I did what I wanted to do today. I ran a really cool marathon, and <laughs> I think I'm going to call it a day. So I didn't exactly party with everybody.
0: But yeah, one saving like
1: grace some- on my – yeah, it was it was amazing. I, I think I've seen some half-marathons, same thing in the, in the U.S., where everyone's getting together, and it's all about the concert and the free beer afterwards. So that was uh, kind of funny to see. I guess one thing I'll brag about is of the 22 Americans, I was the first American to finish. So I certainly wasn't fast, but I was the fastest American. So I'll take that in my ribbons. There was no award, however, so I can't yeah. brag too
0: long. Well, well, good for you. These days, uh, you kind of wonder whether you want to admit to being an American. But I always, I, used to, when I was traveling internationally, I said you put on a, uh, a maple leaf and say you're Canadian. Nobody hates Canadians.
1: I agree. That is an interesting thought. And when I was running, People from Poland, they're proudly wearing their Polish gear. People from Great Britain or people from, I saw someone from Wales and from uh, Italy and a couple of other South American runners, always wearing the colors of their country. And uh, I have to admit, I did not. I was pretty nondescript (laughs) because I I didn't really feel like. So one thing, I never felt at risk while I was over there for the week. But I also, I'll admit, I didn't put myself at risk. Like I didn't do anything that was inappropriate or would draw too much attention to myself. Because Israel has mandatory military service, everywhere you go there, and it's basically right after high school. So when the kids are 19, 20, 21 years old, the young women do two years in the army, which is called the Israeli Defense Force, IDF, and the young men do three. And so everybody's kids, are in the military, and everybody's kids, so these 19- and 20-year-olds, are walking around with a submachine gun strapped to their back. So they're in their uniform, and they're on the bus going to work, and they're going here, and they're going there. But so everywhere you go, there are people, and that's just their job, and they're armed. I mean, that's one of the reasons you don't feel unsafe, because there's a pretty good public representation of their defense force all over the place. But, yeah, Yeah. no, in that respect, I did nothing to draw attention to myself. I tried to be kind of innocuous and inconspicuous.
0: Well, that's great. Sounds like you had a good adventure. Let's head towards the exit here. What are you going to do now that you've uncorked the genie on this adventure thing? What's next? Nice. I like that reference. A little Aladdin and the –
1: what's the – the Thousand Nights? Uh, I'm forgetting the the name of the story. Yeah. So I have to admit, I think my next adventure and your – an instigator on this as well is I think I'm going to aim for a hundred miler next year. I haven't picked the one I'm going to do. I've got in my back pocket ghost train, which is up in New Hampshire, but that's a looped course. Sure. So that's in October. Sure. I know I could get into that. Like I'm not worried about it selling out. And I know that there's no way I'm doing one of the, the big old fancy ones like hard rock or, or Western States. Cause there's, there's lotteries and all sorts of stuff, but there's a bunch of hundred milers out there. And I, I think that's the next big apple I'm going
0: to take a bite out of. My coach told me not to do a loop course because I'd feel like sitting down on one of the loops. He said, if you're on the course, it's harder to quit. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
1: so my 12-hour race that I did in August was a a a two-and-a-half-mile loop. And you just go and go and go and go. And it it starts at 7 p.m., so it's in the dark most of the time. And it rained half the time. And it was a pretty intense mental exercise. But I think I came out of it stronger and knowing – I basically learned that I can suffer for four hours straight. So if I go and run a marathon somewhere, I could be having a bad day, and I know that I can suffer through for four hours. So, in fact, I might do that with you at the end of the month. Yeah, I think think my next big adventure will be a 100-miler, and I'm going to look for other trail races around the U.S. Like It'd be fun to travel and and not have the whiplash of of jet lag. I was fine while I was over there, but my week that I got back – my body did a little bit of yo-yoing on my sleep cycle. So I'm glad I'm healthy, but I'm, I'm glad to travel in the U.S. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, it takes practice. Yeah. I'm going to let you go. Anything else you want to leave us with? Any, uh, any particular uh, links or anything you want to share with people?
1: No, I hate to say this, but I'm not the most social media savvy guy. I guess I will make a plug for there's a podcast out there called The Extra Mile. And uh, for folks who are listening to your podcast, I'm sure some of them appreciate The Extra Mile. But that's one of the places I like to make a contribution every once in a while. I have a Spreaker podcast called Just Plain Dave, but I'm not a very prolific podcaster. I just like to tell a story now and then. So I'm, I'm not looking to supersize my social media presence. I guess my last thought is that people should look for opportunities to go and find something interesting, step outside their comfort zone, like step out on the limb and do something interesting and challenging. Because you know what, next year you might not be able to, you know what, maybe right. circumstances change, right. maybe someone else in your family gets sick and you're stuck staying home. And so when you have a chance, you got to go and just carpe diem, grab, grab that opportunity and go for it. And, and frankly, one of the reasons I did it now is that my kids are, old enough teenagers that going on my own and traveling by myself meant that my family was just fine at home without me, without little kids. But I think that's certainly the highlight of my year was just jumping on an airplane and saying, let's go see something new and exciting and different. And um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell some stories about it.
0: Yeah, great. Sounds like you had fun. You had a real positive experience. So that's a proof point for people. Uh, And it's all about your attitude, how you go into it. So, all right, man, I got to let you go. I got to go home. Get some food. Paper, All right. Time to get some work done. All right. Thanks, Chris. Bye now. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. You can handle it. Fear and the mind shift. So I read a book recently. I know. I know. It seems like I'm always talking about a book I've recently read. It's true. I probably read more books than most people do. I would like to believe it's because I like to learn. I would like to believe it's because I want to find ways to become a better person. Ironically, I probably read so much to avoid acting on any of these things I read about in the real world. But it's probably not black and white, right? Things never are. Some of this reading is a constant quest to find answers to the questions, those questions that bother me. Some of it, probably, is escapism and avoidance. Instead of talking to humans, I can retreat into the mind of an expert for a few hours and feel like I accomplished something. (laughs) Anyhow, I read this book because I had heard the author interviewed on a podcast, and he sounded like he had an interesting thesis, and I was curious. The author was Dr. Robert Glover, and the book was No More Mr. Nice Guy, Okay, before I go any further, disclaimer, let me remind you that I am not a doctor or anything certified or even qualified. I'm just a reader, maybe an observer. You are the captain of your own boat, and don't be afraid to ask for help from someone who is qualified. And by the way, that's one of the traits of nice guys is they don't like to ask for help. So there you go, the basic premise of Dr. Glover's work is that there is a certain type of person, and mostly men, who have been programmed to be nice guys. They do everything they're supposed to do. They lead honest, hard-working lives, but they fail to live up to their potential, and they fail to get what they want out of life. It's a short read and easy to digest. Some of it edges up a little uncomfortably against misogyny and conspiracy, which is thin ice to tread on, especially these days. But I don't think that was Dr. Glover's intent. He's just trying to help a cadre of wimpy guys who feel like they got a raw deal. And the deal these nice guys thought they had was they would be nice, avoid conflict, work hard, take care of problems, And in exchange, they would get what they wanted. Turns out that's not what happens. Turns out if you follow that script, you end up miserable, not getting anything you want, and stuck in middle management. So this, by the way, is an example of a covert contract. A covert contract is when you think you have a quid pro quo deal with someone or the universe, and the other party doesn't know that contract even exists. You get mad and frustrated when they don't hold up their end of the contract. You know, that contract they don't know exists, and they never agreed to. (laughs) Many of the themes he talked about are common themes that we've all talked about before. Seeing the world as abundant instead of scarce is one of those. Having and reinforcing that attitude of abundance, that's hard for nice guys. They are desperate for approval, and they try really hard to get it, which causes them to discount all the great stuff that's around them. And they are needy by default because they are trying so hard to get people to like them. Dr. Glover has a unique take, or at least an additive take, on how to deal with fear, which is what I want to talk about here. Nice guys deal with a lot of fear. They tend to see the world as a scarce place. And this makes them fearful to lose what scraps they have, believing that they will never be able to replace what they have. Fear of scarcity as well as fear of success. Nice guys live in this stew of anxieties. Nice guys are also afraid to act on almost everything. Why? Because acting means the potential of failing or disappointing someone. Nice guys have spent their whole lives trying to gain approval and are devastated by rejection or criticism. When failure or the appearance of failure or the possibility of rejection are the potential results of action, especially significant action, nice guys quail. It's easier to hide under the covers. It's easier to give ground to others it's easier not to take action because that way you can't fail or you can't be rejected. And you can see how much of a trap this is. First, any action that is significant enough to make a positive impact on your life, that's guaranteed to come with the risk of rejection or failure. There's no easy path to significant progress. Avoiding these actions, the important ones, the ones that put you out there, is that straight path to mediocrity, or as Dr. Glover says, middle management. The second is that hiding under the covers is not going to keep you safe anyway. We all know there is no hiding from life. Life is not a safe harbor. Life is not a flat water paddle. Life is a series of whitewater rapids. And for the nice guy, that's terrifying. So anyhow, how do you you reverse this? How do you train a nice guy to carpe the diem? This is the good part. One of the most powerful concepts that I took from Dr. Glover's book was the simple statement, I can handle it. Let's say that again. No matter what happens, I can handle it. I just love that. It's a logical extension of the standard fear advice of thinking about what's the worst that can happen, right? So that advice, the what's the worst can happen advice, aims to engage your big brain rationally by having you think through the potential outcomes and realize that there's nothing terribly bad that's going to happen if you feel or are rejected, Move it into your conscious mind and out of your irrational mind. And that's one way to rationalize the fear. Saying that you can handle it not only rationalizes the fear, but shifts the power of the fear. Now you're in control. No matter what happens, you can handle it. That's a great piece of learning. The master class version of this <laughs> is now looking at the things that scare you and leaning in. Taking that fear that would normally turn a nice guy into a quivering mass of inactive jelly and instead using it to activate you. That's the master stroke. That's what the superstars in this world do. They feel the fear. They still have to rationalize it. The difference is they know they can handle the outcome. And instead of freezing or running or hiding, they turn into that fear and use its energy to drive their performance. And that's really all you can control is how you do it. The results are still going to be out of your hands for the most part. But if you accept the fact that no matter what the results, you will handle it, you now have the freedom to execute into and with that fear. Okay, Now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have spurred your camel through the eye of the needle. That is the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-400. I'm sure it was a biblical, a real Old Testament type experience for you. Next up for me is the Groton Marathon. It's a made-up race in the town I grew up in. I've got a handful of people coming out to run with me. Hopefully the weather won't be as dreadful as it was last year. There's uh, construction going on at the place where we have the start and finish, so I'm going to have to figure out how to put in another couple hundred feet somewhere, or just cut the course short, because, I mean, who really cares, right? (laughs) Sorry, if you want to swing by Groton, Massachusetts, on the 30th, Sunday the 30th, we have uh, all sorts of distances. It's not just the marathon, and I usually get, yeah, 20, or so knuckleheads for my running club to show up. We have some fun. I think David Foss is coming up. The dates work out well this year, uh, that the marathon uh, in Groton that I hold will be on the 30th, so I get a day to recover for the Hangover Classic on the 1st. And then I jump right into some serious training for Boston. January and February are the big months, and I'm going to talk to Coach and see if we can't load it up and get some good miles in. I'd like to be overconfident going in, because as we all know by now, you never know what the weather's going to be, do you? If you want to follow my training, I use Daily Fitbook as a platform. My Garmin data also updates Garmin Connect and Strava and My Pal, which is also where my nutrition is tracked. As far as I know, there's probably other sites. I love adventures. I've been traveling most of my career and I always enjoy the spaciousness and the freedom of business travel. I haven't been getting out as much as I'd like to in the last in my last couple of roles for a couple of years which gives me less fodder for storytelling And thank you to David for sharing his travel adventure with us. I felt like I was there. I could feel the dry heat and smell the dust. The dust of centuries. The dust of civilizations. The dust of history. You know, the first crusade went right through where he was. It was the only recorded time the Europeans used knights in full armor on heavy horse for a frontal charge. And it worked great the first time. You can imagine how surprising it would be to have these characters show up in your backyard, a couple hundred of these guys in heavy armor charging down on you. As far as historians know, it was the it was only that once in the beginning of the First Crusade because it turns out that riding a giant horse around the desert in a full metal jacket wasn't the most effective or flexible means of desert warfare. I mean, I understand. I get uncomfortable in Phoenix riding around in a full suit of clothing last week i actually traveled i was in the glorious holiday inn at the cincinnati airport (laughs) i was out at dinner with the client and i sat myself next to their marketing person who i needed to uh, discuss some things with who i'll be working with and come to find out she's a runner she's running her first 50k that weekend yeah, you can bet she regretted broaching the topic of endurance running with me. <laughs> you see, folks, my friends, our tribe is everywhere. Whether it's wandering over the deserts of Negev or over deserts in Hebron, Kentucky. Grown all you want. I own the dad jokes, and I'll see you out there. And then... He thought that he just couldn't die.
1: So Ned,
0: he laughed so hard it made him
1: cry.
0: It's still a relatively, (laughs) too many relatives.